Hey, Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have our final uh, part four of our series, Revolutionary Christmas. As we did a few weeks ago, we're going to be looking back at uh, kind of what the world was like in the first centuries, particularly looking at the character uh, Herod the Great and comparing him with Jesus Christ as Matthew does in his gospel. So this is called The Coming of the King. Lots of history stuff in there. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and head over to North Shore Vineyard Church in downtown Covington, 525 East Boston Street. Thanks for listening. Today, we're going to look at Matthew, and today is is our last of this series, and this is uh, called The Coming King. So, I've got uh, a lot of slides and stuff uh, from history uh, to do uh, it, every one of the gospels every every book has kind of a theme we 've been in the Gospel of John for a year now. Uh, we took a little break f- from it for this series, but one of the themes of of the Gospel of John is is the incarnation Jesus stepping into our world, Jesus being the preexistent one who enters into the story. We saw in in Luke that, that it's Jesus versus the empire. Matthew, the big thing of Matthew is Jesus is king. He's the king. There, there's a phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And you find it more in Matthew than any other book of the Bible. And because that's what Matthew's about. And so it's no wonder that Matthew starts off the story about Jesus by talking, uh, by mentioning uh, an altercation, so to speak, uh, an encounter from a distance, at least with the king of the Jews at that time. Herod. And so before we get to the passage today, we're going to have a lengthy historical introduction. We're going to talk about Herod. All right. Everybody's excited. I, I can just feel it. Like all that. It, it's like we're, we're going to try not to put you asleep. If you fell asleep in history class, we're going to try to keep you awake. Um, we got Herod up here. Kind of kind of looks a little bit like uh, St. Nick. Um, still getting a little feedback. Check, 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 check. Okay. Well, I'll just keep talking here and try to get it. Um, Herod was basically made uh, king of Rome in 40 BC by the Caesars, uh, by the Augustus. Um, Basically, the Roman Empire, in order to rule the world, it was the biggest empire that had ever been. And to rule that large of of, of a population, you couldn't just do it by one person. Caesar was basically the one world leader over everything, but to, to rule that big of a, of a place, it, took, it would take you like nine months to get from one side of the Roman Empire to the other at that time because you didn't have cars or trains or planes. And so uh, the way the Caesars would do it, they would get kings who were locals to rule the people in their area. So Herod became uh, the king. Now, Herod got to be the king because he earned a uh, reputation early on of being a fierce warrior. And uh, in 37 B.C., shortly after he was uh, crowned king by Rome, he led 11 battalions of infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and thousands uh, to, to, to besiege Jerusalem. And thousands were butchered, slaughtered in his own city. These were like the people he was going to rule. And so he kind of kicks off his rule by killing everybody, cleaning out uh, Jerusalem. And that was a taste of things to come. Now, 
Herod, if you look up anything about Herod, he was known for being a genius architect. There are hundreds, thousands of, of, of structures, buildings, coliseums, fountains, uh, places, that, palaces that, that he built uh, during his time. He was known for being a, a great architect, but he was also known for being a great uh, brown noser. Uh, he was a, 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 an amazing politician of his day. Uh, he built these statues of Caesar everywhere he went. And I kind of talked about this a, a few weeks ago. A lot of people don't realize, we, we talk, toss around phrases like, uh, Jesus is Lord, and they seem kind of benign, but that was really taking the propaganda of the day and turning it over. So uh, there was a saying in that day, Caesar's Lord. No, there's no name under heaven by which you can be saved except Caesar Augustus. They would put this on coins. If there was actually a cult of the emperor, you would actually go and worship the emperor. It's kind of like saying the Pledge of Allegiance nowadays. It was just common occurrence. You paid homage to Caesar as a god. And so Herod, he goes around all over where he's building stuff, and he builds these statues of, of Caesar. And it wasn't just a matter of building statues to pay homage to him. It was, it was actually tied in with the cult of the emperor. So there was a, does anybody know what the second commandment is? Okay, this Bible quiz. Uh, uh, make no graven images. And, yeah, no gods before God. And, and the idea of, of the Israeli people that, that in their Ten Commandments was you, that you don't worship anything made with hands. There, actually, this was kind of an interesting thing. There were several occasions where the Jewish people got conquered, and the conquering people would go into their temple expecting to take out these big uh, idols, you know, idols made of gold. Surely they've got in this elaborate temple, they've got these amazing idols, and they'd go in there, and they're like, where's your God? <laughs> and... Jewish people were like, we, we, we don't believe in, in, in worshiping a statue, anything made by hands. And so you can see how this really put uh, Herod at odds with, with the people of his country. He's putting these statues of Caesar everywhere. So he's breaking the commandments and kind of trying to have it both ways. Because Caesar also uh, was, was the guy who um, you know, rebuilt the temple, which we'll get to in just a second. Um, so his family line, uh, I, we've got, uh, he was a third generation Jew on his father's side. He actually was a, a, came from a, a family of Edomites, and they converted three generations before him to Judaism. So he wasn't a Jew in the ethnic sense. His mom was a Nabataean princess. Uh, I want to show a few slides. This is from when I went to the Holy Land uh, a couple weeks. Anybody ever seen this before? This is called uh, Petra. You might have seen it on Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think. Uh, uh, the... The Nabataeans, they, this was from the kingdom of the Nabataeans. It's likely that Herod actually grew up in this city. This was built about 300 uh, B.C. Uh, do we got any other pictures of this? Yeah. So they, they built this. It's, it's huge. I mean, it, you can spend several hours walking around this place, uh, these places carved out of the sandstone. They just carved, and, and a lot of it was, was just tombs, very elaborate tombs. This was taken from the inside of one of them. Uh, Herod's mom was a Nabataean uh, Princess. So Herod had this reputation among the Jews of here he was ruling them, but he was considered a half Jew by everybody that he ruled. So the kind of the ironic thing is, though he rebuilds the temple, he can't go inside it. So uh, there, there was, you know, he could go to the kind of the court of the Gentiles, but he basically in Jerusalem, you can go to a place where it overlooks the temple. So he wanted to kind of have precedence looking down on the temple. He could see what was going on there, but he could never go inside it because he was a Gentile. Now, 
Herod was a, an amazing architect. He, he built this place called uh, Masada. And this place, I, I went there as well. It's in the middle of nowhere. Like nothing. Like there's, there's not villages, cities. It's, the, it's desert wilderness. The, the only thing you've got nearby is the, the Dead Sea. And it's dead. There's nothing in it. So it's, it's, a, it's a nice view. But there was a legend that King David had hidden out on a rock outcropping named Masada. So Herod, in all his vainglory, says, If your greatest king, King David, had hid out on Masada, I'm going to live in luxury on Masada. And so uh, he built this place on Masada. This is kind of looking at it from the... I didn't take this picture, by the way. Uh, This is looking at it from the air. Uh, You can see uh, on the front part of it, this is basically, it was a three-tiered palace. Let's see the next slide. So this is kind of an artist, uh, artist rendition of what it would li- look like. This massive palace. Now understand, Masada, the top of it was completely walled in. So you could fit thousands of soldiers up there. 5,000 people could, could easily live in comfort on top of this thing. And it, it just had one little like goat trail going up the side of it. So what's the next slide? What's the next slide? Okay, this is a view of, of the, the uh, looking out over it. Do you notice something about this picture? Uh, that's the, that's the Dead Sea off in the background. So you can see it from up there. There's not a whole lot of green stuff, right? (laughs) There's, there's nothing. It's, it's like when you see David and the Psalms writing about in this dry and weary land where (laughs) there's no water, he's probably writing it out here in this place. Uh, he might've written it on Masada. actually, I don't know. Uh, so Herod says, I'm going to build a palace up there. And he builds this palace, and he completely messes with the, the drainage of the desert and, the, and, and actually gets all the mountains to kind of funnel the water to the base of Masada to where it would go into this cistern. And because you get rain maybe once a year, once every two years there, when you got rain, it'd be a lot of rain at once. And, uh, and, and so the cistern would fill up with enough water in one rainfall to provide water for 10,000 soldiers for 10 years. Now, this is where it gets crazy. You see this? That's a false floor there. I mean, it's a, it's a floor built up above another thing. They, Herod, you're in the middle of a desert. He actually had hot and cold water in his palace, had this floor that, that had steam running under it so your feet wouldn't get cold, uh, had, had a swimming pool. I mean, this is 2000, over 2,000 years ago. This is, you know, thousands of foot up in the air. And that's the kind of, that's the way that Herod rolled. So uh, it was actually... Uh, it was actually such an impenetrable fortress that when Rome decided to conquer it, uh, you know, about 100 years after it was built, uh, after, after they, they sacked Jerusalem, they go, there was a holdout of a few thousand people up on Masada, and it took Rome three years to conquer Masada. The Roman Empire, with thousands of soldiers, it took them three years to finally build something that could, could get into it, and then everybody uh, committed suicide. But... Uh, <laughs> Next we have, I told you uh, that, that uh, Herod was a, a bit of a brown noser. Uh, he built this place called Caesarea Maritima. And I've got some pictures of this that I took as well. Uh, this is just the ruins of it. But, but this is basically on the Mediterranean Ocean, Mediterranean Sea. Uh, there was nothing there. It wasn't like a city that he kind of refurbished. There was nothing there. No city had ever been built there. He kind of did like New Orleans stuff. He drained the swamps and, and uh, he decided to build a, a state-of-the-art city there. 
the largest harbor in the world at that time was six acres. That was up in Athens. And so he says, no, we're, everything Herod does is way over the top. He builds a, a harbor of 520 acres. Uh, it's amazing the technology they had back then. Uh, the harbor walls, they poured concrete going 80 foot down into the ocean, and they were 100 foot wide. Again, this is over 2,000 years ago. Uh, he actually built an underground sewage system that would drain when the tides went out. Uh, and he, he had this palace overlooking the ocean. Let's see what we got next. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of looking at the harbor. I think we got a picture of his palace. Oh, yeah, this is, this is the Hippodrome, the stadium in there. Uh, and let's go to the next slide. Oh, this is the area, you know, we, we have to use amplification even in a room this size. In, in that Colosseum, when you stand out there in the middle of this amphitheater, you stand right there in the middle, you can talk normal voice, and thousands of people sitting in the crowd can hear you without any amplification. So very advanced technology. And then we got a picture of his, this is the ruins of his palace, but you see this little square thing right there? That was the ruins of his swimming pool. He really liked swimming. He, he was a big fan of, of swimming pools. So he had this palace that was surrounded by water on three sides, and then he had this swimming pool, but he's like, Eh, I don't want a saltwater pool. I want fresh water because he's, again, over the top. So they de- designed these aqueducts that th- this is what's left of them. I mean, I was just blown away. Like something built. I, you ever watch that show like uh, World Without Humans or whatever? You know, like how, how quickly does it take uh, the weeds and the animals to take over modern cities? And it, it, if, if you saw after Katrina, it doesn't take long. You know, I mean, a, a house sitting there. For a few months, it's done with. These things have been there for over 2,000 years, and they still work. So he built these 19-mile aqueducts coming from the mountains that went down one centimeter per every meter perfectly, and they're still like that to this day. And so they would bring fresh water into his, his city of Caesarea, named after Caesar, and um, into his swimming pool so he could live in the lap of luxury. Now, let's get on to the personal life. Uh, do we have another picture there? Oh, yes. This is me and my dad, and that's a, a bit of a statue of a uh, foot there. Yeah. Not sure what that was. Uh, <laughs> Herod the Great, the family man. Now we get to, to, to look at how he ran his family. He was over top with everything else. Uh, he was kind of over the top. He had 11 wives, 43 children, a busy man. Uh, <coughs> Some of y'all will get that later. Uh, he, he was kind of paranoid of his, of his family, a little bit paranoid. Uh, one time he was going out of town. He was starting to feel like his wife, Miriam, wanted to kill him. So he tells one of the servants, hey, look, if, if I happen to die while I'm gone on this business trip, you kill her. And so the servant uh, talks to her, says, hey, look, Herod thinks you're out there to kill him and stuff. And so needless to say, when Herod got back, she was a little distant, a little cold. Uh, didn't want to hang out and watch TV with him, so Herod went ahead and had her killed anyway uh, for being cold and distant. Um, he, he actually uh, he, he thought one of his uh, sons was, was gunning for the throne, so he drowned his son in the family pool. Um, he had two other sons. He got paranoid as well, and they gave lengthy statements. You can actually read their their uh, defenses in the history books, and he had them killed too. They didn't convince him. Uh, he had the, a dispute with the governing body of Israel and decided to kill them all. Um, there was one point where he filled a stadium in Jericho with all the, the, 
you know, important people, the influential people, most influential people of the Jews, barricaded them in and said this, when I die, I want you to slaughter everyone in the stadium so that I will be guaranteed that there will be weeping and mourning on my death. Yeah. It was believed that Herod was actually one of the richest people that ever lived. Not just the richest people of his day, one of the richest people ever. Uh, he, he, it's said that, it, it's some, that, that in his life he employed some 500,000 people in the service of his various uh, building projects, uh, which you'd, you'd have to be. The most notable achievement that Herod did was building, uh, rebuilding the temple. Uh, it was said after Herod, re- this is, this is uh, in Jerusalem, it took, this, is, this is kind of the, you see that wall on the right there? Um, that's like the remnants. That's just the that's this foundation, and you can see that this found just the foundation of the temple goes up like forty feet. That's just to get it to the spot where they built the temple. So this is just stuff that was left. All these rocks there are stuff that came down when the Romans attacked it. It was said, if you hadn't seen the temple, you had never seen a beautiful building. The temple in all its glory, it was it was beautiful. It, it began construction. Uh, I don't think I put that down. It, I think 19 AD to, I mean 19 BC to 9 AD, and uh, that was just the first aspect. But they continued to build on it till 64 AD. Um, he hired 18,000 people to build this temple, and it was truly considered one of the ancient wonders of the world after it was bone, uh, built. There were these Herodian stones that were like half the size of buses, school buses. They're, you know. About this tall, big, but like probably from here to that wall. Uh, and, and it was said th- in the history books that, that on the Temple Mount itself, there was not the sound of a chisel heard during the entire construction of the temple. Which meant that they had to be so precise in their engineering that they would build these huge stones that we'd have trouble moving today. I don't even, they still don't know how he got them up the mountain of Jerusalem to the Temple Mount and put them in place. But they carved them precisely somewhere else, brought them to Jerusalem, and stacked them together uh, to build the temple. 2.3 million of these stones estimated to build it. Uh, I, I think I've got it. Yeah, this is, a, uh, this is from a model at a museum. They, they had this model that's probably about the size of this room uh, that, that shows the, uh, it's a scale model of what Jerusalem was like in the first century. But you can see how big the, this is just to give you an idea about how big the temple was. Because I think sometimes we think of temple like a church or maybe a mega church. But this thing was mega mega. It was, it was huge. Uh, there's another view from it here. You can see these are good sized buildings down there on the bottom. And you can see how big this thing is off in the distance. Uh, do I have a picture of the Wailing Wall? I think uh, it was probably up at the beginning. Okay. Well, the Wailing Wall is really just the last wall that's left of the building. But again, it's, it's just the bottom wall. It wasn't, it wasn't even a part of the, the main wall of the temple. So this is kind of when you see that on TV or whatever, uh, where people stick their prayer requests in the wall, that's, that's the last bit that, that was left. And this is closest to the uh, Holy of Holies, which was the most holy part of the temple uh, up top. So, again, Herod spends decades rebuilding the temple but he can never go in it again because he's, he's only half Jewish. Now, one last uh, piece of architectural craziness over the top stuff. He built this place called the Herodium. Uh, let's see a picture of this. Um, 
Herod wanted to build a palace between his homeland of Edom and, and Jerusalem. So he picks a spot that was halfway. And he's like, I want a palace here, but I want a mountain palace. And they're like, dude, there's no mountains around here. We will build a mountain then. So he built a mountain. Um, you know, you can see this little carved out part down there, you know, towards the bottom. That's a, a, an amphitheater. So that's like a, 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 a standard size amphitheater, just to give you a picture of the scale. Uh, he had a pool, another pool, uh, on top of this, uh, as part of this palace that was reportedly nine foot deep and so big it had a gazebo in the middle and you had to take a boat to get to the gazebo. Uh, just, you know, over the top. And so it, it, it's, it's kind of interesting to note that on the Mount of Olives, you can actually see this mountain in the distance on a good day. And so... I wonder if when Jesus tells his, his uh, disciples, if you have faith, you can move mountains. I wonder if he had that in mind. You know, hey, this thing Herod did, pretty impressive, moving a mountain, actually making one out of scratch. But if you have faith, you're going to do bigger things than Herod. But that's another message. So Herod spent most of his time living in Jerusalem, surrounded by people that supported him. Uh, and if they didn't support him, they didn't live. Anywhere. <laughs> uh, he would kill the high priest if they didn't agree with him. He did this on two occasions. Just the, the high priest. The, 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 this is like the Pope. Uh, he kills. The, you don't agree with my policies? Dead. Let's get another guy who does. So he did that twice. Uh, he controlled the religious establishment. He controlled the governmental system, and he controlled the economic system. Now, if, if you go to Jerusalem, even today, it's not farmland. It's, it's, a, it's a metropolitan city. So where did they get their food? Well, here's where we get to the fun stuff. There was no farmland in the city. Eighty to 90% of the people uh, that lived at that time were involved in agricultural work. So when you hear... The parables of Jesus. Jesus was just speaking in the common language, talking about mustard seeds, wheat, uh, vineyards, things like that, uh, fish. That's what most people did. And uh, 80% of the food, 80% of the people were providing food for this very small group of people that were living in Jerusalem, that were, you know, Herod's buddies, and they're living large, uh, you know, extravagant lives. So let's look at the taxes. Uh, anybody complain about taxes here in the United States? You want to feel better about your tax situation? Let's feel better. Uh, <coughs> in the first century, you were, if, if you did farming, you were required to give 25% of your produce or your grain uh, to Herod. And then you were required to give another 12.5% to Caesar. So between Caesar and Herod, you're getting close to 40% of everything you bring in, before you get to do anything with it, you've got to give it away to Herod and Caesar. It was worth if you, worse if you were a fisherman. You had to give 50% of your fish to Herod. Can you imagine what a bummer that would be? You're out in the Sea of Galilee. You spent the night fishing. You, you caught 100 fish. And you get back to the dock, and there is a tax collector. And we, we think of IRS, but it's, it's a guy waiting to take your stuff, basically. It's nice. Oh, nice hundred fish you got there. Okay, Herod needs 50 of those. Uh, and then the tax collector gets his little cut. And I'm kind of hungry, too. I'd like about 
10 or 20 of these. And so you could see why people were so bitter against tax collectors because, and this wasn't even all the taxes. It, the, as I said a couple of weeks ago, it's estimated that the total tax burden on the average person was somewhere near 80%. 80%. And, and, and we have uh, discussions in this country when taxes are getting, you know, above 20% or whatever. So you had 80% of the people supplying uh, proceeds that, that a very small group of people were benefiting on. I don't know if you've ever been to, you know, you go to a lot of third world countries around the world. That's a situation that exists. It's, it's, it's hopeless. You know, you, and, and what's sad, so many third world countries that I've been to, you see these extravagant palaces uh, that the rulers live in, the dictators, the ones who get the money, the funding that goes into their country many times. And then everybody else is scraping by on just anything that they can conjure up. It's, it's, the, it's a story we see in countless countries in Africa uh, and Central America as well. And so the tax burden got so bad at one point that, that the people of Judea actually sent a delegation to appeal to the Caesar. Because the question that was raised, I think I put it on it, <laughs> what is all this tax for? At least with Caesar, you, you could kind of see, oh, he's got to pay all these people. But it's like Herod was just addicted to building outrageous things. Like he, That was just his, his thing. He couldn't stop. And, and understand, he didn't just build stuff. I, I, I really wasn't prepared for this when I, went to the, uh, when I went to the Holy Land a few years ago. I just had no idea how much Herod did. It was everywhere. But he didn't just build stuff there. He built stuff in Turkey, the... Uh, all over the ancient Near East, he financed the Olympic Games. Again, you know, he is just spending money like crazy. And so you're, you're just an average person living under this horrible tax burden. You ask yourself, what is this all going to? And you look up and you see a mountain that wasn't there and a, and a dude swimming in it, you know, kicking back. Oh, life is great. And so you can understand some of the resentment that the people of Israel were feeling. Now, there had been a hope for hundreds of years that the Messiah would come. And in many ways, Herod, even though he wasn't a Jew, you know, the, he didn't come from the right family line, he, he represented the hope for a lot of people because he did a lot of messianic things. He, he dealt with the temple. He got things going there. He, 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 he seemed like he was going to be a great guy. He actually seemed kind of devout on some occasions. Just depending on what crowd he was around. And yet, he wasn't... The Messiah. He was like a false Messiah. It was kind of like there's a term used in Rome at this time, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. What was Roman peace? It's like you beat everybody into submission. You threaten to crucify them. You use a lot of people. You just terrify people to like, okay, cool. That's peace. That's Roman peace. It's, It's at the end of a sword. Don't get out of line or this peace is over. And Rome, Rome got pretty good, had a period of, of, of close to 200 years of the Pax Romana, Roman peace. But it, it's kind of like Herod being the Messiah. It, it, it looks good, but in reality, for most people, it's not a very good reality at all. And so all of that brings us to the scripture for today. 
Matthew 2, verse 2. Don't worry, it's not just the introduction. That's most of the message today. Oh my gosh. I think everybody's like caught up on Roman history for uh, uh, first century history for uh, ever. Okay. Matthew 2, verse 2. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, oh, Where is this child? Uh, sorry. Um, wise guys? Okay, sorry. It seemed funny in my head at the time. Hey, uh, where's this child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all of Jerusalem with him. Okay, keep in mind how paranoid Herod is. He's killed several of his own family members because he thought they were after his throne. And these three... Or it's not actually, it doesn't say there were three. That's kind of, that comes from a song. But these wise, guys, wise men show up and they say, hey, we, we're here to, to, to meet the new king of the Jews. Imagine like hearing that for the first time as King Herod. Like, king, what, what king of the Jews? Uh, tell me about this king of the Jews. And uh, it says that he was frightened and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, I... I hadn't noticed that all of Jerusalem with him part. But, but when you realize that he has basically thinned out Jerusalem until it's only people who he's appointed there. It's only, you're only in Jerusalem if you're in the club of Herod. Uh, all of Jerusalem was terrified that there's another king because it's going to threaten their power. It's going to threaten their position. It's going to threaten their wealth, their prestige. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it had been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you shall come, from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned... From them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word so that I may go and pay homage to him as well. <laughs> right, yeah. Tell me where this king of the Jews is. I want to go. I want to go bring some gifts to him. Yeah, lop his head off with a sword when, you, when you've got your head turned. See, the story of Matthew is the story of a new king of the Jews. A new king has come. Matthew begins with Herod is king. And we hear the real king of the Jews has been born. Who is the king? Is wealth king? Is power king? Possessions king? If it's true... That a new king has been born. You know what that means? It means Herod's going down. Herod's going down. How is this a story about religion? Well, Herod controls it all. See, this is a story of, the, uh, of what, the, what happens when, when government takes over religion. 
when those who are in power start getting their hands involved, start getting religious people on their side. It, it's the corruption of religion. We see a different kind of religion in a, in a small corner of the empire. We see God coming to the lowly, to the outcast, to a teenage girl of an ethnic minority in a little town called Bethlehem. Into this comes a king. And this king brings us what true religion is. It's not religion about a temple. It's not religion about grasping for power. It's not dominating people. It's love. It's service. It's justice. It's mercy. And we see the beginnings of this even in the Christmas narrative. How is this a story about politics? Well, has Herod been a good king? Is it time for a change? (laughs) Yeah. It's time for a revolution. Not just a political revolution, though. A whole different kind of king. A whole different kind of kingdom. How is this a story about economics? Well, as we see even in this day, many parts of the world, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. The gap but th- th- there, there was no kind of talk of middle class back then. That, that didn't exist. <laughs> the rich are getting richer. The poor are getting more and more desperate. Into this scene, Matthew announces a new king. Herod's going down. The announcement wasn't made to generals. It wasn't made to kings. Who does this announcement get made to? Shepherds. The, the, the first people to get in on this good news of a new king are, are the, the last people that should. You've got New Age astrologers coming from Persia, you know, Magi. Uh, they're like studying horoscopes and stuff. And they, they stumble upon the new king. You've got shepherds. Shepherds stink. You know, shepherds were not regarded highly. They, they're hanging out with sheep. The announcement of Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, the King of all, coming into our world, gets made to the most unlikely of people on the edge of things. His birth comes to those who are weak. Herod's going down, and that's good news for everybody, particularly those who live on the edges. I think in this story, we have to remember that, that, that again, no matter where we're at today, there's hope. The baby's been born. A new king. A new kingdom. Today I just want to close uh, by singing one, one last worship song together to remind ourselves of the hope of, of Christ. Uh, why don't uh, I'll get my band up here. And as we do this, I just want us to remind ourselves that Herod doesn't get the last word. Caesar doesn't get the last word. Your marriage problems don't get the last word. Your financial problems don't get the last word. Jesus does. Well, let's let's stand and let's sing. Peace on earth 
There is hope for everyone. Tell the world that the saving King has come and his light is here for all who live and die. And his love is here for all the broken Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God in the Peace on earth. There is hope for everyone. Tell the world that the saving King has come and his light is here for all who live in darkness. And his love is here for all the broken hearted. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God in Messiah, the promise fulfilled, the hope of the world born for us. And all who believe Him, and all who receive Him, are children born of God. Jesus Messiah, the promise fulfilled, the hope of the world born for us. 